I have a 30-year-old regret. I don't know if you all have some old regrets, but I certainly have one. And my regret is over how I treated a college roommate of mine. My, my roommate and I were different in every way. I was from the South, from the country. He was from New York City. I was 6'2", 150 pounds. He was 5'4", and 275 pounds. My things were organized, no laughing. It was before a wife and five children, but my things were organized. His things were a disheveled mess. I was a neat dresser. He was unkempt and untucked. I was a very, very private person, and he wore his heart on his sleeve. And that was actually my roommate's fatal flaw in, in my book, because he was always trying to get me to open up always trying to get me to talk about my feelings, and I was always resisting because I was afraid of vulnerability. And as you know, when you are afraid, there are two reactions to fear. You either flee or you fight. So I chose to fight, and my fight took on uh, the appearance of talking about my roommate to anyone who would listen. And since my roommate had enough quirky characteristics... It wasn't a hard sell for me to get the pity of practically everyone on campus. Poor Craig Bailey. Poor Craig. What a roommate he's got. Wow. How does he put up with a roommate like that? My roommate had no family. No family. But I took every friend I had to my home on weekends except him. Never once did I invite him to my home. And here's the really sad thing. My roommate really, really loved the Lord. He loved to talk about the Lord all the time. And so I treated a brother in Christ very, very badly because our differences made me so uncomfortable. So I, so I cut him off. And I wonder how you treat people that you are afraid of or people that you are uncomfortable with. How do you treat them? That's inside the church, outside the church. You know the story of Gandhi? Gandhi, it said, was so interested in Christianity that he wanted to become a Christian, so he, he excitedly, as the story goes, showed up to a Christian church one Sunday morning in India. But it was a church of white people. And so Gandhi was not permitted to come in. In fact, the story goes that an elder of the church told him never to come back, and so he did not. And we know the rest of that story. But it's not a stretch of the imagination to believe that once the door had been closed on the face of Gandhi that the congregation joined and stood and recited the Apostles' Creed together. You know, how you and I view people and how we treat people says way more about what we believe about the gospel than what we say we believe. We can profess, as we did last week in the Apostles' Creed, That we believe in one universal church, there's just one for all people. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, just one. We can say we believe in the communion of saints, fellowshipping together. We can come around the table of the Lord as we're going to do this week. And all that can take place right here together. But how are we treating people? What are we doing for them? Does how you treat people confirm or deny that you truly understand And truly believe the gospel. That's what I want us to probe around in a little bit this morning as we come to Deuteronomy chapter 10. So if you have your Bible open, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. 
Deuteronomy chapter 10, beginning in verse 14. To the Lord your God belongs the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your forefathers who went down into Egypt were 70 in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. Let's pray together. Father, uh, bless our hearts with your word this morning and your truth. Where necessary, Lord, break our hearts this morning with your word and your truth. Father, bring transformation to our lives so that right now and every day we resemble more and more the people that you have called us to be because we're doing the things you've called us to do. So we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It is difficult to capture, let alone to describe all the emotions that a person experiences, emotions that you and I experience, when you really grasp the truth in this passage that we looked at last Sunday. And that truth, if you look, is in verse 17. Our God, your God and my God, shows no partiality. He accepts no bribes. Or, as we saw the New Testament phrasing of this same thought, God is not a respecter of persons. God doesn't play favorites. It doesn't matter to him what your address is. It doesn't matter to him what your bank account is. It doesn't matter to him what your educational background is. None of that matters. God does not play favorites. Every human being, every human being, is equal. All of us. And his or her complete inability to meet God's holy perfect standard. 100% perfection is required of anyone who will be in the presence of God. And so you and I are all equal. All of us are equal in our unworthiness that God should bother to do anything to help us out of our messed up, sinful, often chaotic condition. Because after all, we, you and I, have put ourselves in this condition because of our own sin. And to a great extent, you know what? You and I have enjoyed the process of separating ourselves from God by our sin because we enjoy our sin. If we did not, we wouldn't engage in it so often. So why should God bother to help us? Why should he care? The heaven belong to him. The heavens of heaven belong to him. The earth and everything in it belongs to God. He is the God of gods. He is the Lord of lords, as we've read this morning. The mighty and the awesome God. What else could he possibly need? You? Me? No. 
God doesn't need us. Here's the thing. God wants us. And that's just one more characteristic of God that you and I have a great difficulty wrapping our minds around because so much of what we do in our lives, some people would say everything that we do in our lives, is need-driven. We have material needs. We have physical needs. We have emotional needs. And satisfying the needs that we have drives almost everything we do in our lives. And so it's often hard, it's difficult for us to separate what we do, even the really, really good things. And and so many of y'all do many, many wonderful things. It's difficult to separate even the very good things we do from the reward that comes from doing those things. The payoff, the material gain, the emotional high. But that's just what makes us human. That's the way we are, and that's just the point. We are human. God is not. God is God. Higher than we are. Above us in every way. But you and I are never going to be amazed by God. We never will be. We will never be amazed by Jesus coming to earth and dying on the cross until we realize that God does not need us. He doesn't. He is complete in and of himself. And if you want to write down a theological term... If you impress your friends with those on Monday morning, be weird friends if you did. But here, here's the theological term, the aseity, the aseity of God. That God is complete in and of himself. The Westminster Confession of Faith has a very interesting phrase. It says that God has no passions. But what that means simply is that God does not seek anything outside of himself to be complete. God doesn't seek anything outside of himself to be complete. And so I'm going to read to you now from the Westminster Confession. Now, give me credit. I don't do it very often. But here goes. This is from chapter 2. Awesome. God has all life, all glory, all goodness, all blessedness in and of himself. And is alone. God is alone in and unto himself, all sufficient. Not standing in need of any creatures which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. (laughs) That's us. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom through whom and to whom are all things. That's our God, complete in and of himself. And yet this God, who does not need us, chooses to act on our behalf. He chooses to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. If we will ever be in the presence of God, if we will ever be in the presence of God, it's only because God makes it possible. It's only because God, wrapping himself in flesh, opened the door of his home in heaven. And he left to take this trip, to come to see us. And while he was away from home on this trip, he did everything that was necessary to be done so that you and I could be in his presence forever. And when he had accomplished that, he returned to his home. He did this. Not for people he needs, but for people he wants. For people he loves. And so in great humility, 
mixed with not just a little bit of shame, we should fall on our knees. Maybe we ought to fall on our faces and repent for ever having taken credit for any of the good work that God has done in us and through us and for us, thinking in some way that we deserve it, believing as we do believe, if we're honest, that even if God were a respecter of persons, we would be okay because look around. We are respectable people. (laughs) I don't see anyone this morning who would not be called a respectable person. And then with utter amazement, we get up and we stand up and we sing or we shout, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And when God reveals himself to us, as he does in Zephaniah chapter 3, as a God who rejoices over us, a God who takes pleasure in us, as a God who, who, who sings over us and exalts over us, we should not be the least bit surprised. And we should not doubt that. And if you cannot believe that God is rejoicing over you with singing right now, that God is rejoicing over you with singing right now, it isn't because you are so meek and such a humble person and so appropriately groveling in your own unworthiness. That's not what it is. What it is is because you are still a respecter of persons and you are a respecter of yourself. You are too fixated on yourself. And you still don't get the gospel. I don't get the gospel. When we think that our bad behavior is going to prevent God from singing, while our good behavior is going to produce this song from the heart of God. Listen, God's joy comes from God's work. God's joy comes from God's work. God is rejoicing over the complete success of the search and rescue mission that he devised and that he executed flawlessly. That's what God is rejoicing over. As we said, he left heaven, his home, and he came into enemy territory. That's us here on earth. Where people who are made in his image, they've been captured. They've been locked up and they've been dragged off and they're being held as prisoners of war. That's the reality. And by his sacrificial atoning work on the cross, Jesus, one by one, comes to languishing prisoners, locked up, chained off, and he rescues us. I think this is why God rescued Peter in Acts chapter 12 the way he did, so that you and I would forever have this picture, physical picture, of what really happens in the spiritual world. Do you remember that story of Peter? Peter's locked up, he's put in prison. Chained up, hands and feet, there he is, in his prison cell, and he's sleeping. Well, an angel comes into his cell, and the cell is is filled with light. And then the angel strikes Peter and says, get up, quickly. So Peter gets up, and the chains that are binding him fall off, and his cell door opens up, as do all the gates of the prison. And the angel says, follow me. And Peter follows the angel, and the angel leads Peter away into safety. That is the search and the rescue. So now look, the Spirit of God, what does He do? Scripture says He shines His light in our hearts. The Spirit of God strikes us, strikes us, and wakes us up so that we can see the gravity of our sin, wakes us up so that we see our need for Jesus. The Spirit of God causes our chains to fall off. 
The Spirit of God opens the door to the prison cell that has held us captive. The Spirit of God opens our ears so that we can hear the voice of Jesus saying to us, Follow me. Follow me. And by faith we follow Jesus. And he leads us safely out of the kingdom of darkness, out of enemy territory, the death and the destruction. We follow him and he leads us out safety and safely into safety, into the kingdom of life and light. Jesus did all the work. We just in faith follow him. And so when God rejoices over us, he's rejoicing in his good work and you and me. We have that straight? When God rejoices over us with singing, he's rejoicing in his good work in you and me. That's why there's all this rejoicing and joy in the parables that, that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. Rejoice with me, says the woman. I found my lost, lost coin. Rejoice with me, says the shepherd. I found my lost sheep. Rejoice with me. Celebrate with me, says the father. This son of mine who is lost has now come home. So as long as you and I think that God's joy over us is based on our behavior and not in his glorious work, you are a respecter of persons and you don't get the gospel. And we had to see this again this morning as we saw it in part last week because if we're not straight on this truth, if you and I are not biblical on this truth and the way it works, we are never going to treat others as God calls us to treat them. Because we don't understand how God has treated us in Christ. And we'll ridicule or tear down a roommate, people who are different from us, shut them out, cut them off, ignore them, people we don't understand, people who are different. We'll stand in the door of the church and not allow Gandhi in. Is that God's plan for his people? Is is that God's plan for his people? How can you and I not sing over someone who God sings over? Who's right? Who's wrong? Is God right? We're wrong? Are we right? God, you just don't know that person or you wouldn't be singing over them. How does God want us to treat other people? Let's move on and consider that. Look with me, if you will, in verse 18. It says there that God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. That's what God does. God defends and God loves. God defends and God loves. Defends. Actually, he executes judgment on behalf of who? The fatherless and the widow. The fatherless. Think about them. They have no dad, no father around to provide for you, guide you, teach you, play with you, Defend you against the bullies when necessary? No, Father. You got nothing. Unsupported. Without direction in the world. What a loss. You're a widow. You've lost your husband. Your life partner. What grief and emotional emptiness is there for the widow? And when and if that widow ever recovers from that emptiness... You have no one to support you and no one to support your children. A life of hopeless destitution stretches out before you. And what are you going to do about it? There's no one in your life to defend you or to protect you. And in Moses' day, these were the weak people. 
the neglected people, the overlooked people, the marginalized people. They were considered a burden to be born. And you could neglect these people and it wouldn't matter much. (laughs) What are they going to do about it? How are they going to make you care? But God gives a special care to those people. People that no one else cares about. He loves those children. He's going to be their father. He loves that widow. He's going to be your husband. He loves the marginalized and the overlooked and the underprivileged that have nothing to give back to him. Nothing to give back to him. God loves them. What else does he do? Look in verse 18. God loves the alien, the foreigner residing among you, giving them food or clothing. It's interesting what Mary Beth said this morning about being uh, in, in Africa. You go ahead and visit a country that's foreign, strange to you. Not Western at all. Go to an Eastern country where the, the language in no way makes sense because it goes up and down like this or crazy letters you don't understand. You go there. And the minute you find someone who's going to help you with that language, when you find someone who's going to help you find where you need to go, to go when you find someone who's going to help you understand as you navigate through that culture, you're going to latch on to that person like that. And if you can't find a person like that anywhere, and you're in that country all alone, you are going to feel completely helpless. God loves these kind of people. God's heart is for all kinds of people, particularly for those who are easily neglected or marginalized or despised. People who have nothing to give back, He cares for them. His love and His grace is for all kinds of people. So what about us? That's God. Look in verse 19. And you are to love those who are foreigners. For you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. See, God is not a respecter of persons and neither can we be. And it's really, really important to God, I think, that we do not miss this fact that we love and that we include and that we care for all people. Because if we do it for the least of these, the least of these, my brothers, for those who, who have no one else, if we will do it for them, then, then doing it for other people will, will come so much easier to us. So God highlights these people. They're very important to him. Let me tell you, ten times, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times in the book of Deuteronomy, just Deuteronomy, not all of the Bible, just Deuteronomy, God mentions these together, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. And so he commands the nation of Israel, when you worship with your sons and daughters, you all get ready and you go to the temple to worship, worship with the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Rejoice together and worship with them. When you bring in your tithe of produce, bring it in. And that that tithe is going to be distributed to guess who? The foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. At the feast, they're big parties. Guess who they're supposed to invite? Just guess. I'll give you three guesses. Okay. The foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When they harvested their fields, the people of Israel were not to harvest everything. They were to leave a little bit behind. For who? Three guesses. The fatherless, the foreigner, and the widow. God tells them, when you harvest your grapes, leave some grapes on the tree. When you harvest your grapes, leave some grapes on the vine. Guess for who? Three guesses. You'll never guess. The foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. And this is the last occurrence in Deuteronomy chapter 27, 19. Cursed, cursed is anyone who withholds justice 
from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. Then all the people shall say, And when the people say, Amen, they say, Absolutely, we agree with you. Cursed is the person who would not give justice to any one of these groups of people. On their own, Israel was no better than anyone else. So they had no basis upon which to feel superior to anyone else, no basis upon which to exclude anyone else from their community. The specialness of Israel came in just being chosen by God. And the tremendous privilege he gave them to be the dispensers of God's love and blessing to the people of the world. And what a blessing that was. To be the ones who would dispense the grace and the love of God to the world. And so now we, as the church, have been given that privilege. We, as a church, are God's vehicle on earth to dispense the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with its help and its healing and its hope. And it's life-giving power. That's our privilege. And this, people, for whatever you think about me, this is why I am pro-church. This is why I'm pro-church. Yay, church! Go, church! This is why I want you to be pro-church. Church first, pro-church. We are the vehicle on earth for dispensing the gospel to the world 24-7. That's why we're uniquely equipped by God to do this. Because we are a family. Oh man, was it... Who, who said it this morning? I can't remember who said it. It was Kyle. What are we? We are a family on mission together. Kyle said it, and I didn't tell him to. Let's say it again. We are a family on mission together. And that's why our resources here at Redeemer Presbyterian Church go to our community groups. We pour into those groups so that we more and more look like the early church. And prayerfully, by the grace of God, we'll have the same uh, results that the early church had. The early church worshipped together. That's going to church. That's church attendance where you dress up. And then day by day, Scripture tells us, they lived together and they ate together. They went to each other's homes. They prayed together. They studied the Word of God together. They celebrated the Lord's Supper together. And they grew. Scripture says that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so this is our hope. This is our hope for gospel-centered growth. Reaching out to all kinds of people, wherever they're from, whatever they look like, with the hope of the gospel. But we've got to know up front. You've got to know up front. Man, it's a big pep rally for community groups this morning. We have to know that this isn't easy. To accomplish this, it takes intentionality. It takes standing up to challenges. It's easier to stick with us an hour. Holy huddles. Don't we love them? Don't we just love to get together the holy huddle and experience the blessing of God? That's our natural default. That's the natural inclination of our hearts. Even the Apostle Peter. Think about him for just a moment. Peter was very comfortable with the way things were. Faith was for the Jews. There's the us and our mentality. That's who faith in Christ was for. 
people he knew, people to whom he could relate, people who were deserving of the blessings of God. These were Peter's holy huddle. And that's the way Peter liked it. And I'm not talking about the bold, brash Peter who said things to Jesus like, if everyone else falls away on account of you, I never will. And then a few hours later, he denied knowing Jesus. We excuse that Peter because it was before the cross. I'm talking now about the Peter. I'm talking about now the the Apostle Peter who had seen the resurrected Christ, who had walked with him, who had talked with him, who had been commissioned by the resurrected Christ to go into all the world and make disciples. I'm talking about the Peter who had experienced Pentecost. The Holy Spirit of God had come upon him and filled him. I'm talking about the Peter who preached on the day of Pentecost a sermon where 3,000 people came to faith in Christ. That's the Peter I'm talking about. A Peter who should really get uh, the, the gospel and who it's for. But not so much. Peter was a respecter of persons. Peter, even then, spirit-filled Peter, thought that some were more worthy of the gospel than others. Well, God knew Peter's heart. And so God gave Peter a vision. And you know the story. He goes up on the roof and he falls asleep and he has a vision. And the vision, this big sheet, comes down from heaven. And in the sheet are all kinds of animals. Clean animals and unclean animals. And God says to Peter, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. No, 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 no. No, Lord, surely not. Surely not. I've never eaten an unclean thing in my life. A second time, God says, Peter, get up, kill me. No, surely not, Lord. No, I've never eaten an unclean thing in my life. A third time, Peter, get up, kill me. Surely not, Lord. I've never eaten an unclean thing in my life. Peter wakes up. He's trying to make sense of the dream. And some men come to the door and say, we want you to go to the house of Cornelius. What's Cornelius? He's a Gentile. He's an unclean person to Peter. So Peter goes. And as soon as he arrives at the house of Cornelius... There's a large group of people there, and guess what the first thing Peter says to them? This is the first thing. Now, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. (laughs) First words out of his mouth. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. A little more interaction, and then Peter begins to speak. And this is what Peter says. Awesome. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And then Peter preached the gospel to Cornelius and to all the people who had gathered there in his home. What a breakthrough for Peter, even the great apostle. The gospel going out to someone he thought should never receive it, Someone he thought would never receive it. But here's the real shocker. Peter's preaching, preaching, preaching. And while he's preaching, the Holy Spirit comes on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who were with Peter, those are the ones, the Jews like Peter, they were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. What a dramatic picture. There could not be a more dramatic picture of how much we cannot believe that God is impartial, that God is not a respecter of persons. You see what's going on here? The the people that had come with Peter, they did not think it the least bit odd 
that God would save them. Well, of course he would. But look, they are astonished. They cannot believe it that God would not only call people like the Gentiles, but look what else he did. He even gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit, poured out his spirit on them. What had these people been missing that would make them believe that God wouldn't be this way? What had these people, even the Apostle Peter, been missing that made them believe that God wouldn't be this way, that he wouldn't accept all people? How had they missed the message? And what about us? Now, what messages are we missing? How are we treating other people? Those who are different from us. And those whose differences make us a little afraid. You know, sometimes we're even afraid to speak to someone who who doesn't share our language. We just don't know what to say, so we're afraid we don't say anything at all. Where are we being a respecter of persons? Here in the American South. Not that we would actually close the door on Gandhi to keep his kind out. But who do we just plain old neglect? Who do we just not care about? Who do we just not have time for? And why do you think God keeps these three kinds of people always before us in Scripture? The foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Why are they always before us, New Testament or Old? Perhaps it's to remind us always of the gospel. It's to remind us of the gospel. Are you redeemed by God? If you are, say yes. Yes. You know what that means? You're redeemed by God because God loves strangers. And He's kind to them. Ephesians tells us that we should never forget that we were one time foreigners. We were outsiders. We were the aliens. Ephesians 12, too, says, Remember, at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded. You were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Without hope and without God in the world. That's what we were. Foreigners without hope, without God in this world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. So we encounter internationals Foreigners, strangers, we're reminding, hey, there's a picture. That's me. That's who I was before God came and rescued me and saved me. And so when we reach out to the internationals, when we defend them, when we speak up for them, we are reminded of the gospel that God reached out to us, welcomed us, brought us near. No more strangers. When we care for the fatherless, we're reminded that Jesus promised in the upper room on the last night of his life, I will not leave you as orphans. That's what Jesus said. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And we're reminded that Galatians 4 tells us that God sent his son to redeem us so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying what? Abba, Father. So you are a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Reaching out to the fatherless, reaching out to the orphans, reminds us of the gospel. 
and, God, and what God has done so that we might have a father. No more foreigners. No more fatherless. And what about helping widows? You know what I'm going to say. We are the bride of Christ. <laughs> That's who we are. The bride of Christ. And even right now, Jesus is at work in us, according to Ephesians 5. Cleansing us. Washing us with water through the word to present us to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And we are awaiting the day when the wedding is going to take place. What Revelation calls the wedding supper of the Lamb, when Christ will receive us unto himself as his bride. And we will finally and forever Finally and forever, without end, be with him. No more widows. No more foreigners. No more fatherless. No more widows. So we're the ones that are blessed. Whenever we reach out to these people, because every time we do, we are reminded of the gospel and what God has done for us. The question remains is, what are we doing to reach out? To all different kinds of people, but especially to the foreigners, the fatherless, the widows, especially to those who are not influential, especially to those who can't give anything back to us. What are we doing? How are we reaching them? Community groups, I plead with you now, be intentional about this. Find the internationals. We know where they are. Find the fatherless and the orphans, those with no role models, we know where they are. Find the widows, those who have, we know where they are. Find them, and not just them, all kinds of people. Let's be intentional about reaching out to those who need us the most, caring for them. They're always going to be among us. They're always going to need our care. And they're always going to remind us of the gospel. So we should thank God for the privilege of finding them, and ministering to them in Jesus' name. Let's pray together.